This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains you to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I am Rezula Alikozai. Tonight, we want to offer more education to our community regarding the movement for Black lives and police brutality. Dr. Finney Coleman, the former director of African American Studies at the University of New Mexico, joins us to discuss the history of systemic racism in the United States and the importance of Black Lives Matter movement. Longtime GJ member Joshua Horton conducted this interview in 2016 after a summer that saw many consecutive murders of Black men and women at the hands of police. After the discussion, stay tuned for calendar events and music chosen by our youth, starting with They Don't Care About Us by Michael Jackson, chosen by Media Justice Apprentice Elijah Cage. In the summer of 2016, after the murders of Philando Castell and Alton Starling at the hands of police, we sat down with Dr. Fanny Coleman, former director of African American Studies at UNM, to share his insight on civil rights history, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the African American experience. Now, Joshua Horton speaks with Dr. Fanny Coleman. This is Joshua Horton with Generation Justice, and I'm fortunate enough today to be sitting here with Dr. Feeney Coleman, Director of American Literary Studies at UNM. We're here to discuss today police brutality and the African-American experience. Uh, welcome, Dr. Coleman. Thank you for being with us here today. Will you share a little bit more about yourself? Um, certainly. I'm, I'm the former Director of African-American Studies here at UNM and former Dean of, uh, Interim Dean of uh, University College here been here at UNM. This is my 11th year here, and uh, I have two children, Anlay and Finney, and I'm married to Dr. Doris Cariaga Coleman, who teaches in Chicana, Chicano Studies. Um, so I know you teach a course uh, at UNM entitled Black Lives Matter. Do you think over the years police brutality towards African Americans has changed? Um, has it always been this bad and now we actually have the technology to capture it on camera? Uh, or, or do you think there's been a substantial increase in cops killing blacks? Well, I think it depends on when you start that history. If you go back to, say, Bacon's Rebellion in 1676 and move forward, that story has different contours, different resonances than if you just think about police brutality since, say, the Civil Rights Movement. We tend to do that because it wasn't until the advent of the television that most Americans had a chance to see firsthand what police brutality looked like. And so many people imagined that it didn't really exist or it didn't exist the way that people were um, describing it because they didn't physically see it themselves. So if we go, say, from the mid-1950s to right now, of course, police brutality has changed 
I think the public image of, uh, of, of, of violence um, has changed a great deal, what's acceptable on television and what isn't acceptable. I think the violence that we saw in the 1960s was certainly more brutal than now. Many black men and women were killed during the civil rights movement at the hands of police. But that is a long relationship that's too simple to just try to encapsulate that in terms of more or less in our moment than, say, in 1955, 60, 70. I think one of the things that's so disheartening to me that the, the murders of uh, Philandro Castile and Alton Sterling are so heartbreaking to me, but they don't surprise me as a young black man anymore because you see it on the news almost every day. How do we stop from becoming desensitized, even though police brutality and excessive force on black people happens like on a daily basis? How do you keep your balance and yourself hopeful? Well, I think that we, we sometimes have this fear of becoming desensitized to violence and the like. I don't know if if the historical record at least bears that out, we have seen increasing levels of violence that we witness on television, increasing levels of violence that we see on the internet. We see this ability to consume these images is significant, especially among our youth. But the idea of what it means to become desensitized to these images, I think is, is, is very vague. Does that mean that we will stop caring about people being killed in the streets? Mm-hmm. Uh, Does it mean that if we see so much of this, we won't pay it any attention? I think that's a a genuine concern. But I'm more concerned that we take action uh, when we see those types of incidents. There are always going to be people who will not care, who aren't going to be uh, sensitive to what these horrific acts of violence mean. In fact, some of these, some people are the perpetrators of those acts of, of violence. So we shouldn't be surprised that these images are out there. We shouldn't be surprised that they're consumed. We have enjoyed, if you will, that kind of violence. We've enjoyed that kind of consumption from the early days of horror movies. I mean, if you look at the images that we choose to consume, we choose to consume, for example, those brands of hip hop that celebrate violence Mm -hmm. a bit more frequently than we celebrate those brands of, of hip hop that urge the com- communities to towards uplift and, and, and righteousness. So that is part of being human, I think. There is something attractive about violence to human beings. I can't explain it, don't quite under, understand it, but I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. Um, the way that I remain hopeful is I teach. I spend my time with young people. I'm very blessed and fortunate to have a job where my job is to speak with young people, speak with people who are interested in learning about their world, and to try to share my knowledge of that and, and help them to their own understanding uh, of the world. And hopefully the influence that I have on them is a positive influence and an influence that has them or leaves them more aware of what's going on in the world and also more prepared to engage in activism, patriotism, whatever ism that you'd like to to put out there that we can move forward positively to impact our community and our society. That gives me great hope. I think also a place where I find a great deal of hope is working with children. I coach little league soccer, for example, and, you know, these little kids who are, you know, 
fourth and, and some fifth graders, they are just learning about the world. They don't hate. They don't, they aren't racist. They're not white supremacists. Those are things that they're going to be taught. The question is will it, whether, whether or not they'll learn. And I'm hopeful that, that this generation, that my own children are, are a part of, that that generation will do better about being critical of the images and the historical messages that we pass down to them. I think it's easy to feel that sense of hopelessness when you, when you see the countless uh, African-Americans that are killed by police. But I think something that gave me hope was being at the rally with you for Alton Sterling and Philandro Castile and seeing that there was a community and other people like me that cared just as much as I do. And I think something I took, something powerful I took from that rally was um, when you talked about your son and going home not knowing if telling him to comply would be enough. Could you explain that a little more to me? Certainly. I think like most men of color who have children and especially who have sons, you want to do everything that you can to protect them, not just from police brutality, but any threat that they're going to encounter in their in their lives, whether that's from a bully or from a stranger, any kind of threat that you can imagine. I think that's our, our role and our, our responsibility as parents. For my child, and like many other black men across the country, you know, I understand that my child, when he goes out, people don't see him the way they see some other kids and that he's going to encounter people who are going to judge him based on his skin color, not on his intellect. They're going to base their judgment of him on some antiquated notions of race, not on his cultural heritage and the values that he brings to the table. And so I have to prepare him as positively as I can for those encounters. When it comes to encounters with the police, of course, I'm going to teach my son, if a law officer asks you to comply with an instruction and that instruction is lawful and doesn't cause you harm, then I think you're compelled, you're required to comply, to do what it is that officer asks you to do. But with police brutality, what we have are bad actors. And we have to be very clear, too, that we're not talking about all police officers. We're talking about a very small minority of police officers. But that small minority is a powerful minority. That small minority is a dangerous minority. And when he comes in contact with police officers, I don't want him to just jump to the conclusion that the officer that's talking to him is a bad officer or a bad actor. But I need to make sure that he has the judgment to understand when he is dealing with a bad actor. And so it, it's more than just saying, if the cop says, tells you to lie down on the ground, go ahead and do it. I think that you have to do everything that you can to protect yourself. I don't think that you can, you know, confront and resist and violently work your way out of a situation where a police officer is asking you to comply. But it's very difficult now to say with the same kind of conviction, do exactly what the officer tells you to do when we do see these examples of bad actors not caring or being too afraid. And I think the fear factor to me is the one that is is the most difficult to, to wrap my head around because many of these killings, especially the killing of Sterling, had everything to do with fear. This officer was afraid. And when you send people into a community where they are afraid, 
people make the most horrific judgment choices, the most horrific types of activity occur when people are afraid for themselves, for their safety. So I understand the fear, but I also understand that if you train an officer properly, they can learn to negotiate that fear. Soldiers are often fear. fear. Fear is something that you never get rid of. If you get rid of it, that's a problem. As a soldier, I understood that being fearful was not a problem. It was acting out of fear that was a problem, that I had to understand the situation, have enough confidence in my training that my fear wouldn't override my judgment. And I think that's what happens far too often in these cases Tamir Rice's case, for example, no reason that this child should have been gunned down in the street. Fear led to that child's death. No reason that these last two deaths should have occurred. We have to make sure that our officers understand how to manage their fear in these situations, but we also need to understand how to teach our children that you're dealing with someone who might be very much afraid of you afraid of what's going to happen. And so you have to do what you can to alleviate those fears if you can. Your obligation is to comply with the law. And I, that's what I would that's what I meant by not thinking that telling them com- to comply is enough. I think there's an insinuation that I'm not going to tell my child to comply. And and that's not what I intended to insinuate. What I wanted to insinuate was that we need a far more complex response to police brutality to police violence, to this kind of hyper-vigilance, this hyper-surveillance. We need more sophisticated response to that than just comply with the officer. I feel, I I definitely agree that fear comes from both sides. And I feel like there's a target on me as an African-American man. Like, when I get pulled over, I'm scared for my life. And even driving home from the rally uh, the other day, all I could think about was my big brother and my little brother and them not being safe just because of how they look. And I could imagine him being, my brother being Philandro and having his fiance in the car and my niece and nephew in the back and imagine him getting gunned down. So the whole ride home, I'm thinking, I just want to hug my brother, you know? And I come from a family of like real manly dudes. You know, we don't really show our love, but we know we love each other. And I went home and I just hugged him. And I told him, I was like, and cops are crazy out there. They'll kill you. He said, I know. And I just gave him a hug. Mm. So it, there's there's definitely the, the fear that comes from both sides. And, and it's it's hard when you feel targeted, like the cops drive by me and I'm scared. Which is ironic because it's people who are meant to protect and serve me. Right. Well, managing that fear is, is it's an individual thing, right? So one answer isn't going to fit every everyone. Um, again, I think being confident and having thought through what you would do in a situation, mm-hmm. how do you handle a situation, that's the best that you can do. Um, if you have a license to carry and you tell the officer, I have a weapon, I'm reaching for my wallet, there's a chance that if that officer misunderstands you or whatever, that you could wind up dead. And so I think you have to think through, and I've thought through, what would I have done in the same situation? If I had a license to carry uh, a weapon, um, I would alert the police officer that I had that, but I'm learning from this incident what I should probably do. Um, One of the things that I would say to the officer is, yes, I have a weapon. I am not reaching for the weapon. 
Do you understand that I am not reaching for my weapon? I mean, we can ask questions back to hopefully find some clarity. And that's not to excuse the police officer who killed this man, because your training should have told you that even if this person is reaching for a weapon, has this person just told you they have a right and license to carry it? What person tells you, hey, I'm going to reach for my weapon and kill you? No, if he was going to do that, he would reach for his weapon and fire. This officer panicked. Now, that's just based on the evidence that we have from the video, from the part of the video that we have and from the, you know, the, the statements that have been made. We don't know all the facts. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get more information from these police cams and the like. But it seems at least at first blush, there are some things that we can do to make sure that we try to alleviate fear. Uh, when we get into those types of situations. So thinking through scenarios and making sure that we've worked through them in our own minds is a great way, I think, of preventing this kind of senseless loss of life. Doesn't mean that it's always going to work, but it's frankly the best that we can do. So preparation is like the best way to try to avoid these situations. Preparation on our own parts individually, but let's be clear, our police officers across the country, across the country, and I can say this as a blanket statement, do not get the level of support that they need in terms of professional development. The cost of that professional development is high. That doesn't mean that officers are not professional. Doesn't mean that there aren't some officers out there who know exactly what they're doing and they do a great job day in and day out, because they do. But even our very best officers could benefit from additional training and support. That's always going to be the case, right? And so our society, in the same way that I think we Uh, don't invest enough in teachers. I don't think we invest enough in our public servants either. I don't think we invest in a lot of sectors in our society where we need to make investments in how we can improve people's job performance. And this is a job performance issue um, as much as it is a moral, uh, racial, legal issue. So 306 African Americans were killed by police in 2015. 136 African-Americans have been killed by police this year so far. Why is it important that there is a movement of Black Lives Matter in 2016? Well, b- before I answer that question, I think we, sh- we should have a point of clarification. Um, there have been as many as 500 people who've died in police custody this year, 1,000 last year. If you segregate those numbers out, Yes, you'll have the numbers that, that you just quoted, but you won't have a full picture of the problem, right? And so just as during the civil rights movement, how African-Americans were at the forefront of signaling, signaling to the nation that we needed to do more in terms of civil rights, those weren't just the civil rights of African-Americans. Those were the civil rights of Native Americans, of Asian-Americans, of Latinos, Hispanos, of whites, The black community, I think, has been uniquely positioned to lead, to demonstrate what needs to be done in terms of social justice in America. That doesn't mean that the black community has a lock on social justice or victimhood or anything like that. It simply means that the black community has led historically when it comes to fostering civil rights, inequality, and justice, social justice. So the Black Lives Matter movement is not exclusively about black lives. 
it is about all lives. I know we, you, you'll have a question, I'm sure, as a follow-up. What about all lives matter? They do all matter, of course. But Black Lives Matter is specifically focused on a set of historical, cultural, political, social dynamics that are germane and specific to the black community. And I know that the Black Lives Matter movement also gets criticized. Well, where are you in Chicago? Where are you in, 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 in L.A.? Why aren't you out protesting when black men are killing black men? No, the cameras are on Black Lives Matter when they are protesting police brutality and violence, state-sponsored police activity in black communities. The cameras are not on them when they are in the black community fighting against these evils. So we seem to somehow imagine that because Black Lives Matter doesn't have a profile in the media within the black community, it's a, a crazy non sequitur logic. But the mo movement gets criticized for doing nothing when, frankly, the movement is doing as much as it can. You're just not covering that, right? So when the media decides to follow Black Lives Matter into the black community, I think then pundits have the right to make the kind of criticisms that they've made of the movement. I think they're unjust criticisms of the movement, but not not unexpected. You know, you expect that kind of um, logical um, evasion uh, when it comes to something like this. So within the Black Lives Matter movement, there are good actors and there are bad actors. Within the civil rights movement, there were good actors and there were bad actors. Within the black arts movement, there were good actors and there were bad actors. I mean, there is no perfection in any of our communities, right? But the Black Lives Matter movement um, is about illuminating the loss of life. And so we have to think about all life that is lost unnecessarily at the hands of police officers, not just black lives, but any lives that are lost there. The real benefit, I think, is if you can solve the problems that lead to this kind of violence at this end of the spectrum, where race and all these other powder keg dynamics are in, at, at play, then I think you have a better chance, certainly a more um, robust chance of solving that problem more broadly. So I don't think that the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the, the leaders of that movement need apologize to anyone for focusing on black lives. Mm. Um, I think that for people to read into that movement what they will, let they have to be allowed to do that because that's their right and privilege as well. But at the end of the day, it's about what you're accomplishing, what it is that you're doing. That's where I would like to see us focus. I'd like to see us focus on what it is that we're accomplishing and how do we get a chance to improve that. Not so much denigrating or criticizing the movement because it isn't doing exactly what maybe some individuals would like for it to do or doing it in the way that some individuals would like for it to do. I think people love to diminish the meaning of Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, but they just lack the knowledge and understanding of what Black Lives Matter is actually about, which you explained, so thank you. Welcome back to Generation Justice, broadcasting from 89.9 KUNM-FM and building number 156 at the University of New Mexico. Tonight, we share a 2016 interview with Dr. Finney Coleman, the former director of African-American studies at UNM. Let's get back to the discussion.
Could you talk about the need to not only educate African-Americans on their own history, but all cultures on black history? You know, I think if you were to to think about history um, in terms of music as opposed to histories, the analogy about educating people makes a bit more sense. So if I had students, independent of their race, independent of their economic background, and I was a professor teaching them about music, right? Mm -hmm. If I taught them only classical music and bluegrass and hip hop, is that a complete education, right? It isn't. It's only part of the different genres of music that I might teach them. Our history instruction is exactly the same way. We tend to focus on particular compartments and spaces as opposed to history more generally. So when I think about African-American history, yes, it is the history of African-Americans, but it is not African-American history in a possessive sense. It's all of our history. It's a collective history. And because it's collective, we need to learn about this history. So it's not that white people need to be educated about African-American history. White people need to be educated about history. It's not that blacks need to be learning about African-American history. They need to be learning about history. And when we use that term, it includes all of the different genres of that history. We need to learn about Latinos, Asians, blacks, whites, all of those histories if we're going to have a fuller understanding of it. So when I think about African-American literature, literature written by African-Americans or about African-Americans by African-Americans, I should probably say, when I think about that body of literature, that body has to sit in context with other bodies of literature. And so I can't teach that in a vacuum. In America, however, we tend to privilege mainstream white American history. And because of that privileging, we come to believe that that is history, and it isn't. It's only part of that history. It's only when you learn these other parts of history that you have a fuller understanding. But we live in a system of privilege. We live in a place where you can live and succeed in this nation without learning all of those histories. Why? Because privilege is bound up in that mainstream narrative. And as long as you're willing to participate in that narrative, you're fine. But if you are intellectually honest and you want to know about American history, then how do you know that if you don't know the history of Pope? How do you know American history if you don't know the history of Seneca? If you don't know the history of blacks in New Orleans? If you don't know the history of the Chinese in building the railroads out west, you don't know your history. You simply know a sliver of that history, that part that would allow you to get by. And if that's enough for you, then fine. America has made it such that you only need to know this language, you only need this particular history, you only need this level of math, and you can succeed at a particular level. But people who are intellectually honest, people who want a full education, understand that algebra is not the end-all of mathematics. They understand that American history is not the end-all of history. They understand that American literature is not the end-all of literature. They understand that classical music, bluegrass music, is not the end-all of music. So we were at the Solidarity Rally last Thursday for the murders of Alton Sterling and Philandro Castile. That same night, five police officers were killed in Dallas at a similar rally. Is there any time in history that you can compare to the amount of violence 
and and the situation we've seen as of late? Well, yes. We can go back to April 29th of 1992 and the L.A. riots. And we can see this kind of violence, actually far more violent than anything that's happened in recent American history. We can go back to Nat Turner's revolt, far more violent than anything that's happened. Denmark Vesey's revolt, far more violent than anything that's happened in our moment, far more people killed than any of those individual incidents that have happened here recently. But it is a mistake, I think, to look at numbers and hope that the numbers can somehow, the statistics, and how they are then used to explain the real history on the ground. What we are able to see now, and I think you know, most people attribute uh, social media to um, a heightened awareness of these incidents. And I think that's true. It's not that these incidents have not been happening. You know, I think it's Bakari Sellers was saying, and I think very eloquently, that it is true that we are seeing these images more often because social media provides us a mechanism. It's not that police brutality has changed. It's that the technology that we have to capture it is so much better than it was recently. We never would have had Rodney King, never would have had the L.A. riots were it not for a motorist and a cell phone and a camera. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't have had that incident. I don't think that you would know anything about these other two cases were it not for um, a camera capturing it. And so when you bring those images to the public imagination and then have the ability to share those worldwide in ways that we just simply did not just 10 years ago, um, of course you're going to have a heightened awareness of it because you're seeing the same phenomena but through a different lens, through a different set of technologies. So have the number of these cases decreased? I think yes. I think if you were to look at the statistics, they are pretty clear that you you have fewer of these types of incidents Um, where people are killed at the hands of police officers than in the past. But the number that were killed and have been killed is still startlingly high. And so we have to go back and say, yeah, we have not seen this history until now, and now we need to deal with it. Does that mean that we're better off than we were in the past? Of course. It is much better today in 2016 for a black man in America, a black woman in America, a Latino in America, than it was in 1966. We're a progressive nation. Things have gotten better, but they are woefully less than what they should be. So we always have the mo- we always have the impetus to struggle, the impetus to fight, because we still are not where we need to be. We may be further along than we give ourselves credit for, but still not as far along as we should be at this point in our history. Well, what can communities of color do to deal with the intense amount of grief, trauma, and, and anger we feel from the murders of Philandro Castile and Alton Sterling? I think the answer has to be a complex answer. We need a multivariate strategy. We can't do just one thing or two things or ten things and imagine that's going to allow us to survive this, this, this kind of grief. We have to honor the victims. We have to say their names. We have to let the world know that this is unacceptable. 
But we also have to think about the debt that we owe to not just these people who've been killed recently, but to all people who've been killed unjustly, to all people who've been killed in the name of righteousness and justice, for people who fought for civil rights and been killed in those efforts, people who fought for social justice and have been killed in, in the line of that work. We have a responsibility, as Dr. King taught us, to speak the truth to power and to speak the truth in love. If you're speaking the truth only out of anger, then you've missed Dr. King's broader point. And that is we do this. We try to improve our community, not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. While we certainly are in the community and will benefit from those efforts, we want our children to have a better life than what we have. That is human instinct. We want our schools to be better in the future than they are now. We always want to improve. That's part of our humanity is to improve. Black communities around the country have always turned to their faith, always turned to the church. And I think now, as much as any time, we need faith, we need hope, we need understanding. The church provides us with that in ways that very few other institutions can. And, and frankly, very few other institutions could. So I think we have to turn back to our faith that if we do the right things, live righteous lives, that justice is going to prevail. So I think we have to do that. I think we have to double down on our efforts to make sure that we educate our children about their history, about the threats that are out there. We also have to work, I think, to address the impact of white supremacy that it continues to have on our society. It is a cancer and has always been a cancer on American society. It's something that we have not extirpated. It's something that still needs to be addressed. Whether the pundits out there on what whatever side of the aisle that you're on uh, or not would like to imagine that it doesn't exist, it absolutely does. We live it on a day-to-day -day basis. So don't tell me that what I live is not true. I live truth every day. And I face white supremacy on a daily basis. And it is intellectually dishonest and insulting um, to be told that you're just imagining this or you're overreacting to this. I've been overreacting to this for four centuries now. I don't want to hear that. What I want to hear is, okay, I get it. What do we need to do? That's where we need to go. That's where we need to be, right? So there are those folk out there on the conservative side of things who would deny the very existence of white supremacy. And that's something that only white supremacy has the power to do, and that is to deny that it exists in the first place. It is a remarkable, remarkable act of power and will to say, I exist, but you won't. You won't be able to see me. You won't be able to encounter me. I'm alive and well. I will govern you, but you won't be able to tell me that I even exist. I mean, it, it, intellectually, it is stultifying to imagine that there are still people out there who can see what's happening in America on a day-to-day -day basis and then just to pretend that Black Lives Matter or the Civil Rights Movement uh, or the Black Arts Movement, that they didn't have a basis in fact and reality. So we have to continue that struggle to educate people on both sides. I think that's like true ignorance, not, not even attempting to to know what it's like in an African-American or, or any person of color's shoes. And I think that anger is, is a secondary emotion coming from that true deep sense of hurt that African-Americans have experienced for years. And I think faith, at least for me, faith and hope is, is the 
the thing that keeps me going, knowing that things have gotten better and hopefully will continue to keep getting better. But we got to fight. I'm optimistic. I, I think that even though we have these horrific tragedies, look at how people have responded to what happened in Dallas. Look at how people have come and embraced police officers. I think that Dallas rally shows us what's good about America, too, that this nation is one of the few places on the planet where you can literally protest against the very people who are protecting you at the moment that you're protesting. That is a remarkable moment that I think gets lost, perhaps, in uh, our discourse about these tragedies. Let's be clear. These are tragedies that need people need to answer for this. The people who, the individuals who um, perpetrated these acts need to be held accountable. Freddie Gray, they need to be held accountable. Eric Garner, they, they need to be held accountable. Again and again, we see these cases where people are not held accountable. So even though I'm optimistic about moving forward, I'm optimistic about those those fourth grade soccer players, I also know that there are some old crusties out there who are set in their ways and aren't going to want to change. And we have to they have to move or get out of the way, one way or the other, because we are going to move forward. We are moving forward as a group. And I think that's across racial lines. I don't think that we can say this is just a black thing. It never has been. And if you look at the people who were at the rally that we were attending, if you look at the people who were at the rally in Dallas, if you look at the rallies all around the country, what's really remarkable about these rallies, as opposed to the rallies in the, in the civil rights movement, is that those crowds look more like America than they've ever looked like mm -hmm. America. And so we have to recognize, and I'm not talking about we are the credit where credit is. I don't mean that kind of Uncle Tom rhetoric. What I mean is that we have to be intellectually honest about who is participating in these movements, right? Um, and it looks more like our country's going to look. And I'm really pleased and, 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 and optimistic about that. Yes, sir. It was us. It was all about us. There was community. It was Hispanics, Native Americans, blacks, white people. It, it was about us. And I think that's, that's where true change comes when we all come together. It was, it was the future of our nation staring directly in the face of our past. That doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it sometimes takes these kinds of tragedies for us to do that. But I think we have to stand up as a nation independent of these tragedies, that the tragedies can't be the, the trigger points for us to stand up against these social forces. We have to find it within, our, within ourselves, within our communities, to come together and fight against any kind of oppression, whether that's racial, whether that's gender, whether it has to do with sexual orientation, any kind of oppression in any form, we need to stand up as a community against it. That's where our power lies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't lie in us as individual racial groups or as individuals doing anything. It matters when we as a people come together. And I think that's the beauty, again, of this nation. I'm not a jingoist. I'm very critical sometimes of our government. I'm very critical of our political leaders. But I also have served in the forces that guard this country. And I've laid my life on the line alongside my other lieutenants in order to protect this way of life. And I don't regret that. In fact, I'm very proud of that. Many of us who have who've served in the military, those civil servants who serve on police forces across the country, I think there are a lot of people across this country who love it dearly and want to see it grow and become the thing that it's supposed to become. My 
argument has always been that white supremacy has denied America its true, its true national heritage, that our desire to maintain the status quo in history, the perpetuation of segregation, laws on the books that segregate and prevent women from voting, those have all been against the American dream. They've always been against the American creed. So what Black Lives Matter represents is America at its best. And that's going to be hard for some folk who imagine themselves to be true patriots to accept. But when you stand up to your government, when you stand up to this nation, that is the truest form of patriotism. When you say this is wrong and I'm willing to take a stand on it, that is what is truly American. Not oppressing people, shooting people, killing people, being strong in this American way. So I'm, I'm very optimi- optimistic that even as the nation becomes more patriotic, that we are reclaiming what patriotism means. That patriotism doesn't mean a bunch of old crusties in a room going, God bless America, or, you know, I'm glad, proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free, or some of the other rhetoric that's come out of our political campaigns in this political season. What I'm saying is we are on the cusp of reimagining America. Black Lives Matter is an important part of that. I think you couldn't be more right that we need to come together before the tragedies. It's almost like when you go to a funeral and your family's like, oh, let's go. Good to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. We shouldn't... This shouldn't be the only time we meet. You know, exactly. we should come together before the tragedies and maybe even prevent things like that happening. What's your vision? Like, what's what's the society you want your children to grow up in and my children to grow up in? Well, the stock answer would be I want my kids to be, you know, Dr. King's vision of America. And But, you know, I think Dr. King's vision um, was a powerful and useful vision for that time. I want more. I want more than what Dr. King thought we could have. I want more than what Malcolm X thought we could have. I want more than what FDR thought we could have. I want us to have a nation of laws. I want us to have a nation that welcomes difference. I want us to be a nation that continues to move forward in science and technology. I want to see us invest in the future. I want to see us invest in science and in the arts. I want to make sure that our children have every opportunity that they can to gain an education. To Every kid that wants an education and is willing to, to strive for that, I think, should receive that. As a nation, I want us to lead in what it means to educate people and not educate people about our ideology and what it means to be an American, no, but to educate them about the world and allow them and create a space where they can become their own selves where they can become the people that they want to become. I think that's the power of America. I think that's the beauty and the future of America. Um, I don't think that the visions that we've had in previous decades and previous administrations or, or previous generations is enough. We need more. We need a broader vision, even than the ones that we've typically brought up. I want to thank you so much for being here today. I feel so uplifted and inspired by you. You know, role model. Appreciate everything you do for uh, African Americans, and just your way of thinking is the cream of crop, man. And I, I thank you so much for being here today. Well, I appreciate you for saying that. I, I, again, I'm humbled to have an opportunity to be here with you today. This is Joshua Horton with Generation Justice. Dr. Coleman, thank you for taking your valuable time to share your thoughts and wisdom. Now, in 2020, your insight is even more important and appreciated. 
Our next song is The Big Picture by Lil Baby. He wrote this song in response to the national protests over the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. This song was selected by longtime community organizer and father of two, Arthur Bill. Trade my 4x4 for GC3, ain't no more freelance speed. I gave him chance, a chance, a chance again. I even told him, please. I find it crazy the police to shoot you and know that you dead, but still tell you to freeze. Love, I seen what I seen. I guess that mean hold him down if he say he can't breathe. It's too many mothers just grieving. They're killing us for no reason. Been going on for too long to get even. Throw us in cages like dogs and hyenas. I went to court and they sent me to prison. My mama was crushed when they said I can't leave. First, I was drunk, then I sobered up quick when I heard all that time that they gave it to He got a license plus. We hope you have enjoyed this hour of community action. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Finney Coleman. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Kate Rizuni, Barbara Ramirez, and Roberta Rael. And thank you to our interviewer, Joshua Hurton. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We are also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlist on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kaylock Foundation, with additional funding from the Khan Alma Health Foundation, and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night is This is America by Childish Gambino. I am Riazullah Ali Kozai. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, New Mexico. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now.